Speaking of reliability, a podcast with good friends talking with you about reliability engineering topics. Welcome to Speaking of Reliability. This is Fred Schenkelberg. And uh, good morning. This is Greg Hutchins. Hey, Greg. It's odd. We we don't typically, when I record, I almost never use the video, but it's it adds another dimension that I have to actually look at the camera so it looks like I'm making eye contact with the, <laughs> another detail to deal with. Um, what, I think it was last week, um, ASQ sent out, I think for their conference for next year, their World Quality Congress, mm-hmm. that they said, here's, here's kind of, I think three or four different major themes. And one of them was supply chain. And I read that one. And I went, isn't this a, you know, like a couple of years too late and even better if it would have been four years ago as how to build a resilient supply chain, you know, and starting to say, this is, you know, the evidence of increased international isolation and, and barriers and, you know, the tariffs were coming on, well before the pandemic shut down all these shipping lanes and factories and everything else, there were plenty of hints that there were cracks in the supply chains, the way we were optimizing them uh, five years ago. And I like, the question I had though, is not specific just to ASQ. It's the Society of Mechanical Engineers, you know, or, or the Royal Society of Botanists or whoever. What is their, is prerogative the right word or, or role or uh, what, they're any, any of these organizations are in, in a unique position to set the agenda. You know, it's through their magazines and what papers they publish and which research they promote, which areas they encourage. And here ASQ saying, hey, we need to look at, at supply chain issues which is, in my opinion, late, but it's that's just my opinion. And there's plenty of room for improvement even now, so I don't think it's a bad thing. Uh, but it's what role does the professional societies have in, in guiding the evolution and improvement of their particular discipline? Great question. Um, boy, so... A couple of years ago, we wrote a book saying uh, with the title, The Rules Have Changed. And I think basically the rules of engagement, if you'll excuse that metaphor, for professional societies, for professions, for almost everything have changed. Mm-hmm. Globalization, AI, COVID, lots of reasons for that. But we're seeing a whole bunch of perturbations, volatility. God, I haven't used that word since SAT. I don't know if I use those big words with you. I guess I'm just in the in the presence of a of a word guru. Oh no, no, no. We've got a great audience. They get all this stuff. <laughs> it's fine. I get that all the time on the blog. All all the authors and stuff. I, I look at the uh, readability score and then you go online and says, Well, what should a blog be at? And it's like third grade level. And I'm like, no. That's that's the wrong audience here. We so anyway, I, I digress. I think the role of a professional society is changing. Um, American Medical Association has lost 50% of their members. ASQ has lost, I don't know, 50, 60%. Um, you're seeing that in all the societies. 
right now, every pro professional society has two big requirements, membership attraction, membership retention. So quick story, a uh, number of years ago, five of us set up a little ad hoc company to provide professional development to societies. So we had 12 societies we were doing professional development on. So the basic idea, there was five of us. We had about 12 societies, everything from PMI, Project Management Institute, uh, to the American Institute of Physics. We had a bunch of them, 12 of them, and we did all of their professional development. So one of us, and there were five of us, one of us every would rotate. So is we, this a professional development of the staff of those societies or of the members of that society? Of the members. Okay. That was, that's, the that's the critical question, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So one of us would fly out on a Friday night, take a red eye, and Saturday morning we would give a talk all day, pro bono. The only thing we would ask for is transfer, transportation subsidies, and we'd give a talk on the future of the profession. And we did it for IEEE, we did it for everybody. And basically that became the, the, the basis for our working at projects, our working at books. Mm -hmm. Until about 12, 10 years ago. And what happens is the society started losing members. And the societies that usually would have American in their title, like American Society for Quality, ASQ became the acronym ASQ. American Society for Mechanical Engineers simply became ASME. Why? Because they realized they had a, a global membership and a global following. When they did their studies, their internal studies for membership attraction and retention, they discovered that the number one issue that people became members of societies was career development. In the meantime, they'd outsourced their crown jewels to us. And that became a cause of concern. The societies before that were happy to basically have us pro bono do these because education, professional development was a cost center, not a revenue center. So they were very happy until they realized that their two critical issues, retention and attraction, they'd outsourced to us. So they took all of them back internally. So now, 10 years later, the societies are seeing the same problem. Participation membership is diminishing and how can they get more members well that's i think they're asking the wrong question that okay. you know is how can i be of service to the people we're trying to serve if they're not actually attracting somebody with a billboard or a super bowl ad so they feel compelled to sign up because of all these promises of you know career development and internet networking and all the other good stuff if they don't actually deliver that i'm not going to renew that membership you know, and if word gets out, they just want your money. <laughs> it's like, why bother? If I can go to the library and get every IEEE conference paper for free, you know, th through my organization's library contacts, um, what do I need a membership for? And then what's even more infuriating, you sign up for IEEE and I'm in the reliability division and I can, I can only get access to content that's just in the reliability domain. The electrical engineering stuff that I really need to know about is I have to pay extra to be in that club. And I'm like, you're nickel and diming me to death here and I'm actually helping. <laughs> you know, come on. So that begs the question, what is the fundamental value add for a professional society? Let's take IEEE. Well, I mean, 
I go way back to the Royal Societies. It was a way for the people interested in the same topic to get around the table and talk about it and share their knowledge. I don't think that fundamentally has changed uh, for many, many professional societies because they do conferences and they do networking events and they do evening meetings and or variations of those things. And it's a way for peers to share what they know with each other and critique and build on their knowledge. I think at its core, that's what they're for. And that what's changed around them is how we communicate. Yes, and now we can do that via Zoom. Yeah, or we can do it on a Google search and find the information we're looking for. Absolutely. But it's, it's so I think the value add, what societies really can do, that's, I don't know that it's ever really, I don't know of a society that I can point to that is really taking it on their own to do this, is to provide a guidance, is to to provide, here's the best practices, here's the evolution of it, here's, you know, but it's, the hard part is, is that it usually involves a committee and then that doesn't usually make much of an evolutionary step. <laughs> <laughs> well, talking about decision-making, I've been involved in a lot of committees and uh, uh, very seldom do I see a breakthrough <laughs> decision-making. Often, unfortunately, it's the lowest common denominator. Yeah. And, you know, it's a kind of a catch 22 for the boards and the, you know, the senior management teams of these societies. It's, they got bills to pay, you know, they got a staff they got to support they got to get articles for their next newsletter or they got a conference coming up they need to, to plan for and organize. Um, And it's just the day to day type stuff, you know, and I've seen some trade magazines on occasion will, you know, saying, all right, some of it is um, their advertisers are saying, hey, we want to do use these tools. And, and, and then they post and publish and promote a bunch of content that says, oh, it, here's a direction to go that happens to be using our main contributor, you know, our main advertisers uh, approach and products. Uh-huh, uh-huh. But some of them do a genuine job of saying, no, this, this is a good way to think about this. this sometimes editors have a unique view of a body of knowledge and saying, you know, this is the trend and I'm going to double reinforce this direction. And it's by what articles they publish, what topics they do, who they recruit to write for them, stuff like that. But I don't see it in the professional societies all too often. It's oftentimes what I've seen over the years is whatever they can get, who's willing to give us content and then we'll publish it. And they, if they get enough contributions, then they can be more selective but by and large, is if you sent an article to a professional society's magazine, it's, you know, if you ran it through a spell checker, they're probably going to publish it. Yes. Um, so that begs the question, what's the future of these professional societies, whether it's IEEE or ASQ? Well, there's, there's still the need for people to share, have formats and forms and frameworks for them to share information, right? LinkedIn mm-hmm. and ResearchGate are probably going to replace professional societies. I mean, there's a massive online discussion forum on LinkedIn for just about any discipline you can think of. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Why do I need to go to a conference? I got a thousand people here I can ask a question to and I can get an answer pretty quick, or I can share a paper and get comments and feedback on it right away. Why do I need to wait for the once a year event and pay 
to be on the list that even gets notified when it's coming up. So are you saying that... Uh, They're the going to continue to fade. They're going to go away. They're not fulfilling their primary role in today's environment. That's harsh, Fred. That's harsh. Yeah, I've been saying it for years, though. <laughs> oh, golly. Well, they're in the mud. They're in the dinosaur is a good analogy. They're walking up into the tar pits. You know, they're, <laughs> some of them are stuck already. And unless they change dramatically and actually add value to the discussion, and one idea is to provide guidance, what's the evolution of this discipline, then that's great. Or what prevents, like ASQ, they are talking about supply chain and quality type stuff. Why can't they pull together the and pay five or six of the top supply chain quality gurus or or, or teams and come up with a, a plan to actually make improvements? Or here's a framework, or here's a paper, or here's a white paper, or here's a study, whatever. It's But I don't see ASQ funding research very often, and the same with IEEE and everybody else, is why they're in a unique position to gather the right people in the room and move forward. But I don't see them doing that. IEEE sometimes will develop standards committees. It's a circle to the bottom of the drain. It's the committee that hashes out what my company is willing to accept. You know, It's like, no, <laughs> it's not forward-looking at all. No, no. And unfortunately, you know, there are a lot of committees. I mean, a lot of uh, professional societies that are in that same bucket. Um, it might be a race to the bottom, as you say. You know, I don't want to. <laughs> well, we've talked about it before. I know on our regular conversations and maybe even on the show is that now the, the, the way people work and communicate and the way people look for and gather information, the way people go about getting professional development, fundamentally hasn't changed, except that we have communication tools that make it instant. If, if I need to find a formula for a particular failure mechanism, I just Google it. I mean, I just look it up online. And I can probably find eight or nine references in a few seconds that are viable. And sometimes I need to go to a library to get the actual document or write to the author and get the details. But I can reach out. Uh, I can contact the author of a paper that's behind some paywall someplace. And nine times out of ten, they respond because you're interested in their work and they'll give you a copy of it. You know, And it's like, wh why do I need a membership that's promising networking that doesn't facilitate being able to network in today's dynamic role. Uh, got a quick story. So a bunch of years ago, not too many years ago, I was on the board of PMI, Project Management Institute. At that time, we had 32,000 members and we were interviewing a new executive director. And we had basically couple finalists. One was an admiral, retired admiral from the Navy. And he had all the polish, the gravitas. He had, he had presence. And then there was another person there who at best was a milk toast, unassuming, shy, looked at his shoes, uh, very uncomfortable in a group of people. So we had two people there. 
Mr. Gravitas, the U.S. Navy Admiral, retired, and Mr. Milk Toast. And of course, I went with the guy with Gravitas. The other guy essentially, and the, the selection committee for the board voted for the other guy. So I saw my future with uh, leadership with the PMI being out the door because I didn't support the, didn't help, didn't choose the other guy. Anyway, this other guy was very interesting. Um, he was essentially the smartest person I've ever seen in a professional society, even though he did not exude what we would consider leadership qualities. Uh, you know, wisdom, spoke well, was extroverted, was smart, had the right quip. You know, none of that. He was opposite, but what he had was vision. And what he said about project management was, um, we at PMI at that time, which were all domestic, we're going to basically internationalize. We're going to become global. That was his first aha moment for us, at least. The second thing, two years later, he said, all work is going to be projectized. Great. And he was right. All work became global because of globalization and all work, whether we're a gig worker working in a, in a company or factory, is going to become projectized. He took membership from 32,000 up to half a million. At that time, this unknown cert called Project Management Professional went from zero to, I think, over a million now, million to million three certifications. And it's a requirement in a lot of jobs now. Yeah. And he was he was an outsider. Totally, uh, you know, he came outside, went into PMI and made it global. Smartest guy in the room that I've seen. So maybe some of these societies can attract what I would call <laughs> that type of forward-looking um, person. But they're hard to come by. Yeah. And they got to execute on it. They, you know, the VMI could have just said, all right, we don't accept that. And you're out of here. Well, it's interesting. The way they executed was, again, counterintuitive. At that time, the society would give everything out free. He hired three lawyers, put a trademark on everything and put a C, a copyright on everything, and basically said, if you use any of our material, you're infringing. Yeah. If you infringe, you're going to get a demand letter. Our next conversation will be with you and the lawyer in court. See, I have trouble with it where and people contribute stuff to these organizations and sign away their copyright. And that's a choice you can make. But, um, they're a publishing house at that point, and they're taking over the content. And you get your name on the byline, but that, it's, it's, they got the value. <laughs> Especially well, if they're going to protect it. And that's what PMI largely initiated years ago. You know, and the guy was brilliant. I would say out of the 100 leaders I've met in various societies, a dozen of them, smartest guy in the room. Right. It, yeah, no, it, it takes it, – but I don't think that model can continue to work where it's – because I see that with – I mean, even with Wiley. They, they want to publish my book, and I'm like – do you want the, will you give, release the copyright to me? Well, hell no. That's our business model. And like, well, then hell no, you can't have it. <laughs> Just like, well, the publishers now have a very, again, counterintuitive model. The authors retain the copyright, but the authors are forced to give back the copyright to the publisher. Yeah. Now I am just, 
we don't need these gatekeepers, you know, if that's what they want to play the role of, of anymore, is we don't need the gatekeepers. Now, there is a role for good editors and for good uh, people that can uh, put together the information and, and create information, right? I have a problem with the professional societies that only the only content they get is gifted to them and it's by chance. So there's, you know, there's one, and part of I'm jaded on this because I know that the Rams committee, the reliability and maintenance symposium mm-hmm. every year sets a theme mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and in every year they get maybe one paper related to the theme <laughs> so if you you see the tagline on the conference for this year and it's on our artificial intelligence adopted and blah, blah, blah. And you go there hoping to learn a whole lot about an artificial intelligence and blah, blah, blah. There's nothing there. There's no, the committee doesn't go out and, and create or encourage people to write on those topics. You write on whatever you want and they'll publish it because they don't get enough submissions and they might get one or two people that actually try to follow the the guidance of what the theme is. But then other than that, they don't talk about the theme. And they get keynote speakers that pretty much can talk about whatever they want mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. not on the theme. And I was like, well, that's a missed opportunity. That's a, a role the conference can play in guiding and, you know, in evolving the discipline. And they talk it like they're going to, but then they don't execute on it. So I see that with professional societies too, as I think they're missing the opportunity. They don't have the visionaries, right? For not for the business model, I think for the good of their society, the, mm-hmm. the people mm-hmm. in the society, the profession. Um, I think the business model will work itself out separate, but if you take care of your profession, of the professionals in your profession, that that's just me. <laughs> well, I'll leave, uh, you know, I'll I'll leave with a with a thought. I agree. The gatekeepers have changed. The gatekeepers with gravitas used to be consultants, thought leaders, people who've written books, people who get on the circuits, you know, the media circuit. Mm-hmm. Now we have an equivalent of influencers. For example, Ascendo, your platform, and you. Are influencers. Oh, I just heard a story yesterday is that the White House invited a whole bunch of TikTok influencers to the signing of some bill, you know, and hope they talk about it because they want to reach that audience that's on TikTok. Yeah. And you have your audience and reliability. Yeah. Yeah. No, um, and it's something I need to, you know, put my money where my mouth is. is in, and I know through the webinars and through uh, some of the papers, it's conversations about what, what are we, where should we be going versus what are we doing? And, but there's still a pretty good chunk of our audience is looking for, well, the basic how-to. What's the difference between A and B methods? Or what is this method? How do I do this analysis? So there's a mix of those things, but I think um, there is a role f- for the site to say, all right, this is the way we need to think about how we, what we do. And this is a, you know, technique to improve your career and your influence and your abilities, not just here's a case study of what we thought went well. Well, you know, our previous uh, podcast was all about deciding how to decide. Yep. 
there you go. That, well, that's part of it. I, I think the work Carl and I've been doing is is intended um, to sh- outline a way that we can do things better and to break it down in a way that can be tr- taught and, and, and absorbed and learned. And so that's part of it. But in a, and, and you know, I've been after MTBF for years. Let's just get rid of it. So that's a negative. I'm trying to get rid of the bad chafe that's cluttering our world and, and focus on what's good. So in some regard, we've been trying to do that, but I really need to focus on it some more. And, uh, but that's for this afternoon's project. So <laughs> we'll work on it later. <laughs> I think there's going to be a role if, if we assume that everything is going to be disrupted, like we said, the rules have changed. Yep. Then they're going to be what we would call preeminent overarching voices, thought leaders in every profession. And we basically need guides to take us from here to there. And you yep. may be the guide in quality and reliability. Yeah, I don't know about that. But, uh, I like talking about this stuff, so that might be part of it. <laughs> got, a, got a bit of experience. So anyway, if you're listening to this, and you know, if you are a big fan of the professional societies, they add a lot of value for you and stuff, let us know. I, I may be completely off base, out of touch with this. On the other hand, if you're not happy with what they're doing, what do you see? What's going you know, wrong in your view of this thing? And what's going to replace it? Um, if you're listening to this podcast, you care about professional development and and continuing to learn and so on. Uh, thanks for doing that and listening to the podcast. It's one of many outlets for you to, to do this kind of uh, just ad hoc learning and, and awareness and all those things. What other techniques do you use? What other places do you go to to network and to learn and so on? Let us know. Head over to ascendoreliability.com slash go slash SOR. A couple ways you can touch with us there. Greg and I are available along with the other hosts on LinkedIn and our about pages on the site. And we really do look forward to hearing from you. So with that, Greg, I think uh, we'll head off into the, the rest of the day that we've got laid out in front of us and enjoy it. Maybe make a difference. Absolutely. Have a great one. Thanks, Brett. Cheers. (laughs) Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Speaking of Reliability. We invite you to join the conversation if you have a question or a topic that you think we should discuss in a future show. Please let us know. You can find a comment box below the episode show notes or just leave a note as part of a review on iTunes.